This is the John Nuzzo Leadership Podcast. Welcome to this month's podcast. Let me get right into our content because this this podcast is going to be a little longer than 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 normal. It'll be a little longer than the twenty two minutes. A couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, Matt Gates came to me, our executive pastor, and he said, "You know, Pastor, I've worked with you forever, and I know yours and Michelle's values because I've worked with you, and yet they've never been defined clearly enough that we can." teach them to our staff and even our church, because these are not values that, that are changeable. They're values that are eternal. What I'd like you and Michelle to do is to, is to truly define the values that you've lived by in your lives. And so what I'm doing in these podcasts, and this is the second in the series, is sharing with you six values that Michelle and I live by that have built the church we pastor. And these are the values in which and by we lead now, the first, the first one that we talked about in last month's podcast is let love lead. And you can go back and listen to that, and I would encourage you to do so. And all of these are standalone, so you actually don't have to listen to the ones before to understand the value that we're speaking of. And so until you understand that there is a value to having values, in fact, let me say it this way. The why of these values is simply this is that when you're governed by values, you make decisions ahead of the curve. Let me, let me explain. If you're going to wait to make a decision when you're under duress or when circumstances are difficult or you're angry or someone has hurt you or wronged you, you're, you're too late. Values make decisions ahead of time. Values let you choose so that when you have to choose, you've already chosen. They will create stability they will create a solid foundation from which to make decisions. The fact of it is, a good or a bad life is largely based on the compilation of choices and decisions I've made. And if you, if you make a ton of bad ones, you're going to have a bad life. If you have the right values, and we all have values, it's just that we have the right ones. If we're operating from, from values that come from the heart of God, then they're going to create incredibly an incredibly solid foundation so that you can be ahead of the curve that when the decision has to be made and the pressure's on, you've already made the choice because you live by your values. Again, now, last month, we talked about let love lead. This month, the second value is start with people. Start with people. And this value as well has a subtext that we wrote. God loves all people. Jesus died for all people. People are the why. So what we do is defined and empowered by people first. Start with people is the value. Now we're very clear in, in defining this to out of our hearts. God loves all people, not people that agree with me, not people that walk with him. If you breathe on, hum, on planet earth, the father loves you. Jesus died for you. He died for everyone. And when you start with people, it gives you the why for your what. Most leadership fails. Most, most lids that occur happen because the what has exceeded the why. That people are now driven to a task instead of a, a, an experience that will change something or someone. So people are the why of how Michelle and I live our life. So what we do is defined and empowered by putting people first. People come first. The value of start with people has been what's 
governed our personal and ministry lives for over 33 years together. These values transcend ministry. If I or Michelle and I had a different vocation in our lives, we would live by these same values. Remember this about godly values. They make difficult decisions reflexive. Let me give you an example. In each of the values, I'm going to take you into some examples as to how these values became solidified in our life. Remember this. Godly values make difficult decisions a reflex. When our church just started, Michelle had it in her heart to help single moms. My wife was abandoned by her father at eight years old, and, and he devastated her. And she never really had any contact with him again until she was 18. It turned this happy little girl into a broken teenager. And uh, it devastated her life. And she's just had such a desperate heart for, for moms as her mom had to care for her. And it had a, a very difficult impact and terrible impact even on her mom. But her mom walked with God and it was a benefit to their family. So we were, the church is just starting and Michelle comes to me and says, Honey, I, I, I want to serve single moms. They have to understand as a church, we didn't have any money. We didn't have anything. I said, Michelle, you know, Man, there's so many things we're trying to do right now. Hun, we just don't have any money for this. And I, I you know, we'll do it, but we, we just right now, we can't. And so she said, okay, you know, that's fine. And uh, a couple, three weeks went by. I came home, and she gave me $1,500 in cash. And you have to understand, $1,500 to us, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how to make fun of it. It, it would have been like somebody handing me, you know, $100,000. And it's cash. I'm like, baby, where'd you get this money? She said, "Start. we're going to start that the single mom's ministry now. And she had a lot of things that she wanted to do, and this was going to be the beginning of it. And I said, well, baby, where'd you get this money? She said, well, I sold my wedding ring. And even saying that today, every time I say it, it chokes me up because I realized what she did is that people mattered so much to her. The value of start with people, people first. It was a reflexive decision. It wasn't difficult. I was kind of taken back, and I said, I said, Michelle, it, it was your wedding ring. And without a thought, without emotion, she said, honey, it's just a ring. These are people. When you start with people, it makes you do things reflexively that you would never do otherwise. And you know, today... The church that I pastor, that we pastor together, has helped so many people that I can't, I, I can't quantify it for you. I, I forget how many millions of pounds of food we gave away last year. Over $3.2 million given outside the walls of our church into the gospel. That started with this value. It doesn't start large it starts with the seed and that first simple truth that jesus loved and he died for all people and i think the greatest illustration and i know so many of you know the word well so i won't belabor this is the samaritan woman at jacob's well in john chapter 4 and we of course know that the jews hated the samaritans and women were an underclass i think there's a prayer of a jewish man in that day that said god i thank you that I'm not a woman. And so this Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus revealed himself to her as Messiah, 
more clearly than, than I can find anywhere in the Gospels, including his own disciples. There was, there was no allegory to it. There was no parable to it. It was the plainest language that I see in the New Testament where Jesus clearly said, I am the Messiah. Now, here's the deal. She wasn't just a Samaritan woman. She was a Samaritan woman who had been divorced five times. And she was now living with a man. His disciples came back from town, which they went to buy food. And they saw him speaking to this woman. And the Bible said they didn't, they dared not ask him any questions. But you know, they had them. Number one, they're thinking, what is he doing? I can't believe he's talking to this woman. Number one, she's, what's he doing with a, this talking to a woman? Women were beasts of burdens in that culture. And she's a Samaritan woman. What is he doing? And they didn't even know the story of her life. Because you know the story when Jesus asked her a question and said, you know, go get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You've had five. You've been married five times. And now you're living with somebody. She said, I think you're a prophet. And then she began to talk to him about spiritual things. When everyone else saw a a person who was considered less than by the culture, a a Samaritan who was, the the Jews despised them. Five divorces is not a good track record. And at this point, obviously, she was just living with somebody, probably almost like a servant, almost like a concubine. The disciples saw a person that they could see all the flaws and the cracks and the wounds and all the reasons why she shouldn't be included by Jesus. Jesus saw a person to redeem. Now, he didn't justify her sin or her brokenness, but he delivered her from it. Church history tells us this woman's name was Fotini. And church history says whether it's accurate or not, I, I can't verify. But that she was literally one of the greatest evangelists of the early church. And she ended up being used mightily in Northern Africa, ultimately being brought to Rome and being uh, executed there. She even had a meeting with Nero and her statements are recorded. How accurate it is, I don't know. But I just think it's amazing that when everyone else saw a Samaritan woman, Jesus saw an evangelist. Jesus saw somebody that was not a throwaway. Let me, I'm going I'm to pivot for a minute and talk about something somewhat controversial. If you've listened to my podcast or, or, or any of the messages I've spoken, I, I don't criticize people. Uh, that's, uh, that is just something I don't, I don't do, and that's not the intent here. But I've been asked so many times by so many people this question. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're in a narrow enough world that you're going to know what this is. Again and again and again, people have asked me, Hey, have you listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? And, and I've been asked that by, I, I can't tell you how many people. And so let me be, I want to be brutally plain to you. And, and, and I'll give it context. So if I offend you, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> anyway, no, just, no, I really don't. But because this is that important. I would rather drink vomit than listen to that podcast. And I'll tell you why. You think there's good, well, there's really good information there. I don't doubt that. But let me ask you a question, and this is no reflection. I don't even know who did the podcast. I, don't, I know nothing about them. But here would be the question I would have. Would you have done that podcast if that was your brother instead of Mark Driscoll? And by the way, I don't know Mark Driscoll. Never met him. Don't, I know very little about Mark. 
but I know he's in his 50s. I know that he, he's gone through with a group of people for, to whatever happened to be restored. I know he's pastoring now in Phoenix. He's not a mythical figure. He's a person. And by the way, he's a part of my body. By the way, he's my brother. And my question for whomever put the podcast together, would you have done it if it was your brother? Your actual brother? Your sister? Your mother? Would you have done it if it was your father? How about this? What if it was your son or your daughter? Would you have done this rise and fall like you're talking about an inanimate object? I don't think you would. Let me tell you something that I've learned, and I, and I want to be as direct as I can be. A spiritual person is defined by how they treat the least among you, not the greatest. And what the Bible defines as spiritual is actually being undermined in the Christian culture today. In Galatians chapter 6, the Bible defines a spiritual person, and let me read it to you. Verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, it doesn't get any clearer than that, you who are spiritual should gently and humbly help restore that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Now share and bear each other's burdens. He's talking about the sin burden here. And in this way, you are obeying the royal law of the love of Christ. I've added the royal law because that's what it is. Now listen, the Bible defines and says we are to share and bear that person's restoration. My spiritual father is a man named Kenneth Hagin. Many of you will, will, will know who he is, and he's been in heaven for many years now. He tells the story of when he was a, a younger man, and, and he was in a minister's convention. And there was a certain minister that had fallen. And a bunch of the ministers were just sit, standing around talking. And they began to talk about this minister and what happened in his life. He said, I just sat by silently and didn't say anything, but, you know, I was there and listening. He said, that night when I went to kneel down to pray before I went to bed, he said, the room was dark. My knees hit the ground and the room lit up like a light bulb was in it, like the sun was in it. And he said, and I heard like you hear a man speak, said to me, who are you that judges another man's servant? And he said, I obviously in my heart knew what he was talking about. And he said, Lord, I didn't judge him. I didn't say anything. And he said it was harsh the second time. Who are you that judges another man's servant? I'm able to make him stand. And he repented. Now I'm going to leave out parts of the story. But he asked the Lord a question that the Lord spoke to his heart and dealt with him and answered a very serious question for him. He said, Lord, he said, why aren't we seeing more people restored in our movement? Why aren't we seeing more ministers restored? And the answer was simple. Because none of you are spiritual. Because a spiritual person reaches into the broken life and restores it. And, you know, I'm a part of a movement, as many of you may be aware of, and may be a part of it as well. ARC, the Association of Related Churches. ARC, as well as a lot of the lead guys in it, have a history of, 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 of collecting guys that have had just some difficult falls and bringing them into their midst and serving them and restoring them. And the criticisms I hear of them doing it overwhelm me. It's one thing if people that don't know God state such stupid things. 
But Christians, in the name of spirituality, undermine what the Bible calls spiritual. I think, it's, I think it, it is the very heart of God that you be known for reaching in and gently and humbly restoring a person back onto the right path. He said, but you be careful. Don't you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You could fall as well. He commands us that the royal law of love is to reach in to the lives of broken people. Jesus reached into the life of a woman at a well. Of course, we know the woman that was taken in the act of adultery. Start with people is the value. And let me say this, unless you have authority or responsibility into help, helping to restore a person, can I encourage you to say nothing? Can I encourage you to stop talking about it, texting about it, reading crap on the internet about it? I promise you, I would rather drink vomit than to consume such filth. It's Christian pornography. In fact, it's more deadly than pornography to a Christian. Say nothing, but just pray for the person. Pray for everyone involved. I'm not suggesting that there isn't some action that needs to be taken for the individual, but if you're not put in that circle of, of, of serving that person and helping to restore them, then either pray for them. And if you're not going to pray, certainly don't sin. Certainly don't expose your lack of spirituality by speaking against somebody who's fallen. Take heed lest you also fall, the scripture says. Why am I saying this to you directly as a leader? Because it's the easiest thing in the world to blow out somebody's candle. It's the easiest thing in the world to tear something down. You want to do something amazing with your life? Build something. Build people. Fight for people. Fight for all people. And I mean all people. Because all people matter to God. All people. Those that love him. Those that hate him. Those that are destroyed and broken in their sin. Those that curse him to his face. He died for them. What I've learned about starting with people is this. Is that Jesus will teach us how to extract what is precious from what others have deemed worthless. I pray for Mark Driscoll. I don't know anything about him. But I'll tell you one thing he's not going to get from me is he's not going to have somebody tearing him down because it's ungodly and it's wicked. He said, man, but pastor, you ought to listen to that podcast. There's some really good things to learn. I think there's ways to learn without being unspiritual and ungodly and doing things that I would consider according. If Jesus were standing in front of it, he would have rebuked it and called you a Pharisee who strikes their breast and says, thank God in prayer that I'm not like that guy. To tear down that man or to deal with his issues is the presumption that you have none of your own. I don't buy it. I don't know anything about them. I'm not saying they're not good people. I'm just telling you they're not spiritual people. Now, let me end with this. People are the why. So what we do is defined and empowered by people first. Starting with people always empowers sacrifice and risk. You see, sacrifice is difficult. Risk is difficult. But when you start with people and you love people, it empowers you. You want to find people that are willing to sacrifice and willing to risk? Find a mom or a dad. 
the love they have for their child is so overwhelming that there is no sacrifice too great. There is no risk too great to them to better the life of the one they love. Here's what I've learned in leadership. Life-changing decisions always require significant risk. Life-changing decisions always require significant risk. The value of start with people has truly empowered every important decision of mine and Michelle's lives. The value of start with people, really all of them, let love lead, which was the first one, have enabled us to trust God to stand in what would clearly have looked like the impossible, where, where risk was so overwhelming. The starting of this church, this October 28 years ago, was an all-in risk for us. I, I don't have time to go into the, the context, but we, we, in obeying God, and we were so clueless, it cost everything we had. There was nothing left. In fact, we were led to give everything away before we started. And I, I can remember thinking, God, why? Why are you asking? You're like Pharaoh asking me to build a house with bricks, and then you take away the straw and the mud. Why? I learned very early on that God would require Michelle and I to give in portions and in, if you will, in percentages of our life and our income that would demand that we trust him. In the beginning, I just thought it was something God demanded of us, almost like a sacrifice. But what I've learned is that you can't give that way if you don't start with people. And that if God can't have my resources for people, he'll never have my heart for them. Because where your treasure is, your heart is also. When we started this church, you know, they tell you write down the pros and cons. And that's not an unwise thing to do. That's fine. But we would have had a 17-chapter book on the cons. And there would have just been a couple sentences of the pros. And those sentences would have been, Jesus died for all people. Let love lead. Start with people. Eternity matters to God, and it really does. And I want to help you to understand that when you start with people, and I mean as a value, not as a byword, it will enable you to make impossible decisions that others would struggle and fast and pray for six months over. I meet so many people that are praying about things they shouldn't be praying about. They're praying about whether they should go do something that either costs money or time or whatever, but they know it's what they need to reach people. Our passion to choose to love all people, to start with people, has exceeded our fear of failure. In Michelle and I, if we've learned anything, it's this, that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things if they'll walk in the love of the Father toward people. I'm going to leave you with this simple concept because it, this isn't a theory to us. It's something we've now lived. And the fruit of it is there. There is not one thing that we did in ministry since this church started that was significant, that didn't look impossible, and we never had the money for it. And I want you to understand that by starting with people and going back to let love lead, and, and if you didn't hear that one, it would be helpful. I've never asked God about money again, ever. Now, we're good with money and we plan well. I get all that. I've never asked, 
how much it costs before I obey. I said, we're going to do this because it's what is needed to reach people. And then we'll figure out what it costs. And then we will act on it because God so loved the world he gave. If he can give his son, I can give my obedience. In these coming months, I'm going to take you through the four remaining values. It's my hope, and, 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 and I would say forgive me for the directness on the issue with the Mars Hill thing, but I don't know how to talk to you about it except directly. I want God to be able to use us to touch our world. Let's not get distracted. Start with people. They're every, every, everything to God. God bless you. Look forward to, to being with you next month. Thanks again for tuning in to the John Nuzzo Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to rate, review, and share this podcast on iTunes. It's a great way to get the word out and to help others grow as leaders. We'll see you back here next time for another episode of the John Nuzzo Leadership Podcast.